0: I hope you had a good night. We're certainly having wonderful weather. We don't get to practice with being really cold or really hot, but there's probably plenty to do anyway, right? (laughs) So, of course, we've been looking at the way in which a noble disciple sees things, experiences things, responds to things. And obviously, we, we've also talked about the levels, you know, this eight uh, eight sort of levels. And the Arahant there at the top, fully enlightened... You know, no more greed, hatred, or delusion. No more sense of self. No more wish to be reborn. No idea of, like, what am I going to be in the future at all? You know, no interest in that. Completely clear about the way things work. But on the other end just getting started. That person practicing for stream entry, well, they don't yet have that realization that the body, feeling, perception, mental formations (coughs) and consciousness are not self. That happens as a result of stream entry. They might all you know, still have some questions about things, but if they're on that track, they're heading that way, they're probably pretty convinced, at least intellectually, that the Buddha had it right. Otherwise, why? <laughs> Except, of course, that when we pick up the practices that the Buddha offered, a lot of times we get relief and then we start to look deeper and start to notice that the more I um, practice meditation and develop my virtue and so on, we, we see more and more of what the Buddha said. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But we're not there yet, so we're thinking, okay, um, how do I want to take the next step forward or how do I want to uh, work with the things that I find challenging. And there was this kind of uh, almost a game I would play with myself in the old days and, uh, where I would say, well, what would an Arahant do? And I remember I, was, I had already um, realized that I wanted to be a nun and my, I, I was trying to find a good place to train at, or one that's appropriate to me, and it's not like everybody fits everywhere. And for nuns, there aren't that many places in Theravada Buddhism, so at least for a while I was living near a Bayagiri Buddhist monastery, which is this wonderful monastery for the boys <laughs> in Northern California. And... I had rented, actually, my mom rented this house. It was kind of, we were kind of uh, working on this together. And um, the landlord did some things that I thought were fairly inappropriate, like um, come over to the house and do some work on the trees, and then say, okay, now I'm going to take a shower in our bathroom. wait a minute, (laughs) this doesn't seem right. And then was hinting like wanting to stay overnight at times because that's what the previous tenant allowed, to use the second bedroom. And and they, no, (laughs) we rented this space right now. It's, you know, this didn't feel right. And I was talking to Ajahn Pasano, he's, he was, one of the co-abbots at that time, but now he's uh, retired from that. But he's been my teacher a really long time. He, he was an abbot for, um how many years? 30? <laughs> <laughs> so, so a very long time. He's seen a lot. And I said to him, so what would an Arahant do? Would an Arahant just be like, oh, yes, please come in. You know, have a shower here are some homemade cookies, you know. And he said, well, it depends on the Arahant. (laughs) Maybe, but another Arahant might be chasing him off the property with a stick. (laughs) So he started to get an idea that, you know, (laughs) it's not all just uh, one way. There's time, place, situation. There's different personalities and it's okay to have boundaries. In fact, it's important. And, you know, just um, this exploration of how do I bring my way of seeing the world and my reactions to things more in line with kind of where I'm going, um, that development, and as we do that, and we think about, okay, the noble disciple is in, incredibly honest. Um, honest with themselves, honest with other people. Very important to be honest with ourselves. Try to see through the delusions we create, the the ideas we have about ourselves and others that may not be really true, fully true. Things like that, and try to understand some of our feelings, like why do I feel the way I feel. Um, we were talking, you know, yesterday, maybe for a couple of days, somewhat about past lives and rebirth, and you know, what does that all mean, and does it matter if we agree with that or believe that or experience that in a way that we know it's true or whatever. And, um, you know, sometimes people will have some kind of feeling they can't understand and then in meditation they'll discover that they knew this person before and even what happened before. And then it really makes sense. And those kinds of experiences or even stories we hear from other people about that can start to help us see this longer view or at least take into account that maybe if I have a strong attraction to someone or a strong (coughs) aversion to someone and there's no real reason for it that maybe there was something that happened before and that that could make it make sense. But then we still want to look at why would I want to treat someone else, anyone uh, better than another person, maybe without any good reason for that either. I mean, of course we treat people differently based on them, what they respond to, what they're sensitive about. You know, you want to be kind and... Um, supportive and then, but what is, what is the part where we want to dismiss someone or ignore them and we wanna pay attention to this other one, right? And now I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with having you know an affinity with someone and having friendships, but when we're in a situation like we talked about once earlier about this impartiality idea in a situation where we're basically in the same kind of relationship with these people, and we wanna have a closer tie or give more benefit to one and not another. And where does this stuff come from? This kind of desire or aversion? Well, when I trace it back it feels like it comes out of my views of myself, how it relates to me. Because we, we are always looking from that place, as long as we're using the sort of ordinary, <laughs> untaught ordinary person's position the way we are, the way that uh, we're conditioned in the world, we're conditioned to be focused on ourselves, protect ourselves, develop ourselves, you know, show up as a competent person, or whatever it is, a, a knowledgeable person. And there's nothing wrong with that except that we build up this perception of ourselves that then has to be protected or defended or, you know, embellished. Or something. And I think that as we're kind of walking this path of, you know, okay, we're on our way to stream entry, then stream entry happens, and then there's a big difference in how we see ourselves and others in the world because we know there's no self, at least in these sort of material and evident aspects that we think of as me or mine ordinarily so that's a big change full uh, confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma and Enlightened Sangha, that's a big change even letting go or that idea of rituals and you know like uh, habits that are going to be protective of us letting go of that is an, a, you know a Source of when I say refuge that's that can be a big change. But regardless of where we are on that track, it's always useful, I think, to look at where our sense of self, because even even the stream enterer or the one, once returner, non-returner, they still haven't completely given up this idea of I. It doesn't happen fully until arahantship. There's a really lovely story in the suttas about this monk who is very, very sick and probably going to die pretty soon. And some elder monks sent a message, messenger to him to ask the kind of usual questions, you know, do you have any regret or you know all that, and there was kind of a there was a back and forth, a messenger going back and forth. And one of the things they said is, "Do you feel like, uh, do you see that, you know, the the body is, you know, impermanent, dukkha, not self, etc." And he's like, "Yeah, I totally get that. I don't see any self in <laughs> in this all five aggregates or khandas." And then they wrote. Sent back the message, well, then you're enlightened. And he wrote back and he said, no, I'm not. (laughs) I know I'm not. And they're kind of like, well, how can that be? And one thing I think he said in there is, it's like looking into a well and you see the water in the bottom, but you don't have a bucket and you can't reach it. He could see what it's like to be enlightened, He's not there yet. And so it seemed like this group of elders wasn't really getting it. Finally, he's like, okay, I'm going to get up and drag myself over there and talk to them. <laughs> and he does. And then he's telling them about this, like how this experience is for him. So he knows that he's not fully gotten rid of the sense of me. I, he said, it's like a flower, the fragrance... Even though it, you can't identify it in any of the parts, it's still there. The fragrance is there. The sense of me. Some kind of idea of self is still there. Now the cool part of this uh, is that while he's explaining this, it gets fully enlightened. <laughs> so that's nice. <laughs> But it, you know, it's helpful to know that it's 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 um, not just understandable and natural, but it's it's acceptable. It's okay that we don't like just immediately drop <laughs> this sense of self. You know, it's like this is a process, and one of the ways I think that is helpful here and now as we practice is to look at when I have this opinion or this attitude or this emotional experience or whatever it is, where does the sense of self come into that? If we're angry, there's something about self involved. If we are craving something, there's like something about the self involved. If I let go of that, okay, it's good to have food. It's good to eat. It's even good to eat things that the body is kind of attracted to. You know, there's actual studies. I don't know if you've heard of this, but studies of children who have certain deficiencies and they had this wide range of foods available and the kids just automatically picked the ones that were the kind that would help... um, alleviate that deficiency. So do you ever feel the difference between I want to eat this because my body is really needing it, or I want to eat this because I've got that craving for flavor or craving for something? Do you know what I mean? Have you experienced this? I had the weirdest thing, I never liked spinach. So I'm living by myself as a nun. So people are bringing food over that's how you eat when you know that's how you get to eat <laughs> and somebody brought this brought this big um, Costco container of fresh baby spinach, and I could not get enough of it <laughs> and I'm like, "What is going on here <laughs> and it went on that 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 um it's like a bodily desire went on for a while and then you know it was gone and you can kind of recognize this sort of thing as a distinctly different experience of desire than that hot fudge sundae yeah yeah (laughs) I want that or whatever it is and you can start to feel the different kind of almost let me say texture of the desire and then reflecting on how me oriented that is whereas the the body wanting spinach doesn't feel so me oriented I don't know if that makes sense you can take that into reflection and just see where it goes and The way, the way in which we're kind or generous, where is that coming from? Is that coming from a place of selflessness? Or is it coming from a place of some kind of gratification coming back to me? Or some kind of stickiness? I mean, if we wanna to talk to somebody about something, are we coming from a place of, when I say stickiness, it always has that sense of self involved in it. Whereas if we wanna to talk to somebody because it feels like this is gonna be a valuable thing to put out there in this space, maybe this will help. That's a totally different feeling. And then if it's not picked up, it's no problem. We don't feel, and that's another way to tell how much self-investment there is in something is when it doesn't work out the way we want it to, are we, are we put off by that, or is there some reaction to that? And we can tell, Well, I'm, I'm actually, there's a stickiness there. What we'd, the noble disciple is really moving in the direction of no stickiness. <laughs> you can love equally, really equally. And, and yet you, you still might treat people differently, like I said, because of what their, their makeup is. They may need different things. And, of course, even the noble disciple, from what I understand, even the arahant doesn't necessarily get it right all the time with kind of what people need. I I don't know if you've seen the biography of Ajahn Chah. It's called um, Stillness Flowing. It's available for free distribution like everything from the Thai forest tradition that I know of. And you can, you can get a copy probably if you want to write to a Bayagiri, but it's also available in PDF form. The book is like this big. Very intimidating. Somehow very light. like, it's just like oh. And it's really, like, I was... Um, when I finished it, I was sorry it was over. Uh, it's a beautiful description of Ajahn Chah's life and so much Dhamma teaching from him and, you know, these different situations through his whole life even as a child playing being a monk when he's like nine he and the other kids they're playing that he's a monk and they're offering him stuff <laughs> i mean don't tell me there's no past life <laughs> because it's a like set up you know it's really cute um but but one of the things that uh is in the biography is that he was a master at reading people and you know kind of being able to help them but it didn't always work that way there were people who left very disappointed sometimes even crying as they go out the gate you know it's like not of course then there's always the who knows what happens later that makes something clear but You know, it's like, it's important, I think, as we walk this path, to not expect perfection of ourselves or anyone else. That's not the world we live in. Even when there's no more greed, hatred, or delusion, no um, distortion in the mind, Um, bias, you know, like, you know, wanting for some reason that even when all of that is gone, it doesn't mean that someone's going to say the right things or do the right things. They're still going to have their cultural conditioning, certain perceptions are still going to be there. And oftentimes I think well, it depends on the person and our conditioning, but some of us really think we should be perfect. And we beat ourselves up if we're not. And that's an endless process. That's an endless um, <laughs> pain in the neck. <laughs> I can speak from experience. So, <laughs> And there's something important about noticing when something has no end to it. So this is something Ajahn Pasano said to me at one time and I don't even remember what it was I was talking about but he said there's no end to it. And when you notice that about something then it's good to just kind of pry your fingers off of it and, and notice that no matter how much you do in that direction it's never going to be finished. And we still might do things in that direction and help people. For example, there's going to be no end to how much of that is needed, and that's okay. We have to be okay with that somehow. You know, we do what we can when we can, and let the rest go. And this also, this not being, not wanting to let the rest go. I think when we examine that, it also comes back to the sense of self. I want to make this difference. And we're so conditioned to do that. Like, you know, somebody was mentioning, you know, when you're a kid and they say, What do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to be? You know, it's all about me being something. And of course, we're just trying, you know, people are just trying to encourage young people to think outside the box maybe or imagine the possibilities for themselves and it's like there's nothing wrong with that until we get stuck in it stuck in you know i'm i'm this kind of person and i can i can accomplish this but i can't accomplish that or have that judgment about someone else what if we open the Open the view and imagine. Hey, I just don't know. This was a very common teaching of Ajahn Chah's. Not sure. Like I said, he always said, "Don't whatever." You know, if someone thinks they're a stream enterer or whatever, they you know you think somebody's an arahant. Keep that little space of not sure. Mm. <laughs> not sure. And. Don't be too sure you can't do what you thought you couldn't do. Maybe that's just not true. Don't be too sure that you have to do what society expects you to do. Especially when society's off the mark. Because it is, a lot of the time. Pushing us in directions that in the end, don't really matter. Again, maybe we can see there's no end to it. So I think that this little ramble (laughs) of pieces of ideas around self and practice and the path and our development, what we think of other people and what we think of ourselves is is really trying to drop notions into the space that say, we can look at things differently than we have looked at them before. And we can get closer and closer to what's actually true if we're really committed to that. And that's important. To be absolutely committed to truth. Not let ourselves fall into delusion or... You know, having some fixed idea, not letting ourselves put other people into boxes. I mean, you still observe what's happening, and you know what's happening. It's not like everything's, um, you know, just unclear. It's not that. You're clear, but you don't. You don't. Don't settle on something when it really isn't possible to fully settle on it. And one of the things that we find very hard to do is to stay with uncertainty. We wanna lock things down. It feels a whole lot safer, but actually it's more dangerous if it's not true. So instead, we can develop our capacity to be with what's uncertain. Because I don't know. I don't know which job I should take. I don't know how it's going to turn out if I you know, encourage my kid to go to music school or not. It's good to tell them I don't know because they don't know. They're going to trust you a lot more <laughs> than if you act like you know and you don't know. <laughs> but you get the idea, you know, it's like we, if we're committed to truth, to understanding, to finding out, to being willing to let go of our previous views, the views we've held, even if we've held them for a long time, being willing to let them go when we find out that it's different from that. You know, really being scientists, but not just about the material world. Really exploring and examining things. Is this really true? There's this beautiful sutta, I might have mentioned it earlier, I'm not sure, because I mention it a lot when I teach, It's number 95 in the middle-length discourses. It's called With Chanki. And Chanki was a Brahmin, a very, very influential person in his area, his city, Maybe, maybe even further afield than that. And he came to see the Buddha, and he had a whole bunch of students with him. And I think there were some other very influential Brahmin teachers also along that day, and There was this one young student, 16 years old, shaved head, totally like serious kid, knows all the stuff, the three Vedas and all the, you know, like he's totally, totally got all the the intellectual stuff down. And he, he starts talking and the Buddha tells him, hey, you should be quiet, let your elders talk. And then Chan Ki says, no, no, this kid really, he can, he can engage in this conversation. He's really sharp. So the kid thinks, okay, if the Buddha looks at me, I'll ask him a question. And the Buddha knows this. He picks up on this, and he <laughs> looks at him. And the, and the kid asks, so our tradition has these hymns that you know say how how it is what it, you know, that this is our this is what we base our um, our tradition on, this thing that got passed down and you know, do you feel like that's true? And the Buddha said, well do you feel like the people who are reciting these hymns, you know, have they directly seen this to be true? And the kid goes, well, no. And have their teachers directly seen this to be true? And he says, well, no. And he said, well, when you go all the way back to the people who, who developed these hymns, and the Buddha could name the people the people who sort of started, started this philosophy that they're following. He said, did they know directly? Did they see it directly themselves? And the kid says, no. And I think that's pretty fascinating because he knew what the Buddha meant by direct experience of something. And he knew that that wasn't how this philosophy, this tradition got created. And so the Buddha said, well, it's like a file of blind men, one after the other. They're all, you know. Well, that had to be pretty insulting. (laughs) But the Buddha apparently was so highly respected, like all these people who are following this tradition are just taking this in, listening. And then um, this young man, this kid says, well, we Take this on faith. And the Buddha said, Well, wait a minute, you were talking about tradition a minute ago, now you're talking about faith. You know, how do you how do you really justify this? And, you know, if you say this is true and everything else is false, that's not really preserving truth. And if you take it on faith and you say, yeah, we, we, we believe this based on our faith. Well, then that's preserving the truth. If you haven't really seen it directly and you believe that that's what's happening, then you'd say, I believe it based on my faith. And so there was this, you know, like, this young kid is like, okay, that's, that's how you preserve the truth. You say, so it's like, you know, if there's something that... A teacher knows directly from their own experience they can talk about it like that but if it's something they're reading from the suttas they have to say this is what it says in the suttas, that's how you preserve the faith I mean preserve the truth and if it's something they heard from someone else if they say this is what this teacher says okay and then the Buddha says to him but that's not the discovery of truth that's the preservation of truth so then he says, "So, okay, so how do you discover the truth? And the Buddha describes that process. He said, you, you go, you, you, you get to know someone, a teacher, and you really pay attention to what they say, and you watch them and observe them and see if they will do anything out of greed to lead somebody the wrong way. Would their mind obsessed with greed cause them to lead somebody the wrong way? And then if you find that, no, they, I I know I mentioned this to you before, but he said, you know that what they're teaching is subtle. You know that they couldn't just, like, make that up in a way. And you know that they're not being driven by greed. Then you look to see if they're driven by hatred in any way or delusion so you go through all of that you really observe this person if you come to the conclusion that they're really not coming from any of that so again it's it's like this for this teacher he's describing there's no self involved there's no like i want this person to follow me because that puffs up my position or my Authority, or I want this person to follow me because they've got money and they're going to help support my thing. You know, any sense of any of that, you run the other way. <laughs> you don't say, Wah. So he's talking to this young man about this. And then he says, then when you know that this person is, you know, what, he, what they're saying is true and what they're saying, you know, what the, where they're coming from is right, And you really visit them often and you listen to what they say. And you really listen with your whole heart, you know, with your, you really take it in. And then you go away and you you memorize it and you reflect upon it and you ponder it and you practice with it and you really start to develop for yourself. And that's how you discover truth. And there might be some more pieces in there that I'm not remembering, but you can get the idea. And then the Buddha says, so he he repeats back, okay, so this is the discovery of truth. And then the Buddha says, but that's not the final arrival at truth. You can see how completely hooked the Buddha has. This kid is like, he's going to like, I want to know, you know, and probably everybody else sitting there too. And so this... You know, what is the final arrival of truth? And, of course, that's that's the arahant. That's the complete understanding, the absolute knowing. But then how do you do it? And the Buddha said, it's the same process. You do it again and again and again, and you keep doing that. You keep doing that same process of trust in that person, seeing that. And, of course, if anything happens where suddenly you realize there's some greed, hatred, or delusion behind it. You pull away and, and look elsewhere. Like somebody, there was a, you know, you probably hear, every once in a while we hear about scandals, right? So there was this major kind of scandal came to the surface with a very well-known teacher, Buddhist teacher, and a lot of people were really super disturbed by it and disillusioned. And one of them, during a retreat I was teaching, came to a private session and said, can I trust this person's teachings? And I'm like, no. (laughs) No, you cannot. If, If a person can't maintain moral virtue, you can't trust the way they're thinking. They might say a lot of things that are correct, but then... You just don't know where the edge is. So this process that the Buddha lays out for this young man, he's, this is how you got to go over that again and again and again, that listening, that taking it in, that reflecting upon it, the memorization of those teachings. You really are taking them deep inside. You're really working with those, and you discover it on your own. It's the only way. And, of course, it's, it's something that we come to love, that process. We're hungry for it. When we get that um, experience of something that really clicks for us and we see it and then we change it, and on something in our life changes, we're happier, we're more at ease, in a lot of ways more beneficial to the people around us, and we certainly want more. And when we start to recognize that the when we thought about what it would be to be enlightened. It might feel really scary. Like, <laughs> would it be really scary that I feel differently about the people around me or I feel differently about life or maybe I don't want to put the effort into the stuff I used to put effort into anymore and I couldn't be really kind of like, whew, I don't know. <laughs> and that's because we're just thinking about it from a place of not, not knowing the experience yet. And it's helpful, you know, just thank goodness the path is gradual. It doesn't just completely like usually anyway um, hit like some bolt of lightning and then everything's different. It's much nicer, really, that it just comes bit by bit and we see the benefit and we feel it. The happiness increases, peace increases, Selfless love increases. Appreciation of everything that's good increases. Clear boundaries get clearer. (laughs) You know, and our ability to have a better sense of how to handle things gets improved. So... The intention behind this sharing is that you have a lot to reflect on or at least there's something there maybe that you'll want to reflect on. And know that there's a lot um, available going forward. You know, sometimes people have the experience of, you know, coming to Dharma teachings for a long time, and they just kind of hear the same instructions again and again, and they, you don't realize. I had the same thing. It wasn't in the Buddhist tradition, but, you know, like you kind of hear about the basic meditation techniques over and over, and, and you think, that's it. <laughs> what do I do now? Then when you look at what the Buddha taught, there's so much more. There's so much more that we have available to us that we can do and learn, and ways to grow, and that um, it's exciting. It's it's beautiful, inspiring. So if it if you get to a place where you're not feeling so inspired, which happens. I mean, even with people in monastic life for a long time, you get to a place, you can't get to patches that are really dry. It can happen. And that's because of the past, of our history, whatever comes up, you know. Then to really know that if you reach out and investigate, you still can find ways to move forward and to work through that, whatever that is that's, that's arising. It's possible to find your way forward. And of course, it's great to get some help with it too. Uh, Those people that you've already observed for a while and you know they're on the right track, they're gonna guide you in a good way. So I think I'll, oh yeah, I have to leave it there. We're having a meeting. So thank you for your practice and your kind attention and I encourage you all to sit in meditation, walk and um, reflect and let this day be a real gift. You know, aren't that many things, well maybe there are a lot of things in life that we can do that really are a turning point, that really provide an opportunity for a turning point but I definitely feel like this kind of experience, meditation retreat, learning about the teachings of the Buddha, this is a real opportunity for a turning point in your life. So I wish that for you. And now we'll head over, um, Carol, Carolyn, Donna, and Zach over to the classroom and we'll see everyone else Maybe we'll be in and out of the hall, but for sure, 2 o'clock, we'll come back and have a guided meditation. Thank you for listening.